0: So welcome everybody to the first episode of the Quarantined Market podcast, uh, where some isolated academicians come together to talk about our times right now that we're experiencing. Uh, Some might maybe say in the luxury of our homes, but uh, maybe others would also like to get out of their homes and return to normal life. What we want to do is to talk about many concepts that we have been working uh, with over the years and to kind of try to relate them to the present moment of extreme uncertainty, uh, both personal and also more societal. And we uh, particularly want to tie them into uh, various discourses of consumption and consumer
1: society. So with me here is Alan Bradshaw. Hello. So uh, by way of introduction then, my name is Alan Bradshaw and I'm a marketing scholar uh, based at Royal Holloway in London. And um, broadly speaking, I think probably you and I, you all, what we share in common is that we're probably more motivated by critical theory uh, that straddles between humanities and social sciences. Um, And we apply these in a series of subjects in the business school, specifically in marketing. So there's a a series of uh, reasonably coherent research fields that we speak to, which might Include macro marketing, consumer culture theory, interpretive consumer research, uh, critical marketing, attempts within marketing scholarship to uh, engage at a broader level of um, of theory and of ideas and and critical thinking. So in that sense, I, I suppose we're kind of a little bit like pirates moving between these different islands of scholarships and seeing what we can learn from. From uh, humanities, from philosophy, from critical thinking, from social sciences like cultural studies, sociology. Would, would you agree with that?
0: Yeah, sure. And uh, I guess we've behaved badly enough in the sense that some of our uh, joint work has also caused uh, yours truly to be sort of banned from certain marketing departments in other universities across the world. And you have gotten some, uh, let's say, not so positive feedback as well about some of the stuff we've been working on, especially when we talk critically about our own field.
1: Yes, I think I think we, we may legitimately describe ourselves as pirates. <laughs> yes. So, uh,
0: so I'm uh, Joel Hietanen, and uh, as a kind of a little update to what Alan said, of course I'm in an interesting position because I'm in the University of Helsinki now. So I worked in various business school environments, including Aalto University in Helsinki and Stockholm University, naturally in Stockholm. But no longer am I in a business school. So I'm in a department called called Center for Consumer Society Research now, which kind of takes, which is a little bit different thing now because it's definitely not a business school. So it's a university that sort of does not in any way want to be like a business school setting. So in that sense, doing critical work there is a little bit more, uh, well, how should you say? I always say it this way, that, you know, you don't have to say you're sorry about being critical about, you know, consumption or businesses. And uh, you don't need to take it for granted that all your students are going to be managers. So, so. Uh, but yeah, I of course, I share your idea that we approach, we tend to approach things critically, from different critical perspectives, uh, to be sure. But uh, yes, this kind of a naturalization of the market, of, of markets, and the naturalization of consumption hasn't really been our thing ever.
1: Yes, and um, what we want to do is to talk to fellow uh, scholars. Most of them, uh, we anticipate, will be people who work in business schools, and in particular will be marketing scholars Uh, And we want to talk to them about concepts which are relevant to our current historical moment, uh, which of course is the coronavirus, and therefore we find ourselves uh, at various levels of self-isolating. So, um, I mean, I might as well mention that I'm based in England at the moment, and the British government seems to be taking a really unusual approach to responding to the crisis. Uh, The schools are finally been shut down today. I think we're with Norway, I think the schools are remain open. It's a partial closure. Um, it, it's slow coming. And generally, uh, as opposed to other countries, Ireland, where I'm from, for instance, it's a much more relaxed um, process. And, and actually, I feel quite terrified about all of this. I'm not altogether convinced that this is wise. So there is... A sense, a, a palpable fear now that this is going to escalate quite quickly into a major catastrophe. So we're beginning this podcast uh, at, at at really quite a, a fascinating and, and terrifying historical moment, locked inside our our uh, doors and um, with our minds maybe cast towards um, critical ideas, theories to see if there's something in there that could just help us make sense of what is a very strange period. What's it like for you in Helsinki?
0: Yeah, so I'm based in Helsinki, Finland, and uh, uh, reading. I've been reading, following the news quite closely about all this uh, globally as well. And uh, we haven't been hit so hard with the coronavirus, but the measures taken to protect us from being hit harder have been pretty uh, pretty widespread, if you will. So um, the schools are closed, the university is gonna be completely closed for at least a month. Bars haven't closed or things like that, but of course many private uh, small businesses have decided to close themselves. So there is a general sense at least of really trying to shut this down to the best of ability, or at least to slow it down, to ease up the curve so that the medical facilities wouldn't get crowded uh, if this gets worse. Now, that being said, uh, just today, there's a lot of this going on where people do really take it quite seriously. But today, a new shopping mall opened and the usual mayhem of people queuing there and fighting for some offerings, uh, the mayhem was exactly the same as as you would expect in any other so-called normal day. So there is this interesting uh, paradox between a whole new way of people living together, but at the same time, similar consumption mania uh, manifesting uh, very rapidly if you just give it a chance. And I'm staying at home quite a bit now too, cause well, I guess we could say we're fortunate as academics that we have the privilege to basically do our work from home without any problem really.
1: Yes, we certainly have that privilege, but also I notice uh, my brief foray is just get some fresh air in the park or to go to the shop to quickly buy some stuff. A lot of people do not seem to be taking it mm-hmm. seriously at all. So plenty of people congregating, passed by the bar that I normally go to yesterday. It was crowded. They all look totally mad inside, by the way. Some people seem to be completely on board for self-isolating, social distancing. And other people just seem to be behaving in uh, as though everything is normal. It's kind of like a J.G. Ballard, because some of the people who were out did seem a little bit crazed. Um, I'm not altogether sure if that's true, but it certainly was the impression I found. So it is kind of like a J.G. Ballard novel, where this is the perfect period now for psychopaths to flourish. So so you think there's uh, equal, uh, equal amounts of
0: possible uh, like escapism going on? You said the bars were full and looked crazy as as a but they similar simultaneously there is also amounts of people taking it seriously so you are seeing this kind of split
1: possibly and perhaps it's a good men- a good point to mention that something that theoretically that you and I probably share in common is that we would probably both want to uh, attach ourselves to the word pervert in the theoretical sense and what i mean by that is the type of research that we associate with Slavoj Zizek and others. And what he meant by that is the pervert is the person who reads discourse and reads society generally in terms of what he imagines the underlying kind of libidinally charged moment might be, how the unconscious is kind of exposing itself. And this can be interpreted by somebody who's tuned in So that we can read culture the whole time and look for these little moments where people are just behaving a little bit strangely. So rather than try and have some sort of objective measurement of society, the pervert instead is looking for the kind of fetishistic moments, the libidinally charged moments where people's unconscious strange behavior is beginning to surface a little bit, but only in such a way that it can be read by the sort of nuanced mind, which makes us quite a strange kettle of fish from a research perspective. Would you agree, or are you happy to allow yourself to be affiliated with this type of terminology, Joel?
0: Absolutely. I think uh, uh, even more than that, I think all academic work is essentially perversion in in some sense. And uh, uh, for me, uh, perversion is always, in this sense, closely linked to neurosis. So uh, the pervert is also the person who, Uh, thinks that they know the answer. They wanna uh, structurize the world into a manageable whole. And of course, this is what we're seeing uh, in our, uh, what we're doing right now as a podcast here, but also around us when there's a lot of things going on where people just do something for the sake of doing something. Now, of course, those are, at least in my books, they're all acts of perversion, trying to control the uncertain, control their own uh, insecurity. Uh, even uh, at least we did something rather we did nothing, no matter if that something, in you know, in effect is in any way helpful.
1: And I suppose the interesting moment for us is that when people try and respond in these ways that it's possible to see the strange behavior uh, that, that, that things get out of kilter and we start to see a little bit of what Will Self would call the sweet smell of psychosis.
0: In many ways, uh, of course, we see this all around us uh, every day now, in a psychoanalytic sense, all the enjoyments of hoarding, people hoarding toilet paper, people hoarding tomato sauce. Now, you might want to ask what's going on there, but at least they are again doing something, in a, you know, if you will, a libidinal rage.
1: Although I have to say, I'm wondering how true it is, uh, this concern that people are hoarding. So for example, I know that some of my relations have hoarded, but only in as much as they're vulnerable people, you know, who are elderly, who really ought to stay away from shops and they intend to self-isolate for a period of about two weeks. And what they've done is do two weeks of shopping. So that in itself just seems entirely fair enough. But also the other aspect to it is is that in, in Britain this is very much the case, I believe, whereby I remember when I was growing up in the 1980s. there was more of a sense of the weekly shop, you know, where a car would be driven to a large car park and the car would be filled up with stuff. And that really seems to be giving way to much more of a type of metro shopping where people are shopping more frequently but buying much smaller bulks. Um, But given what's happening at the moment, people are reverting back to uh, the concept of the weekly shop. Um, And that might account for why people are just buying more, um, than they normally are. And then also, the other thing which I bet lots of people are doing is they're buying stuff for the people around them, you know, for their uh, elderly relatives who don't want to go to shops, things like that. So we, we have this big wave at the moment of condemnation of stockpiling. But I wonder how much of it is true. And again, this is the, the sort of caveat of the type of perverted cultural reading that there might also sometimes be materialist explanations for what's happening. Uh, Which we should always kind of keep in mind. So never allow ourselves to kind of depart into um, into pure abstract thinking and normative judgment. Always kind of keep an eye on what might be the material explanation, Uh, especially all the better if it's quite banal, like what I've just described. Uh, I agree. But
0: nevertheless, you see these uh, interesting phenomena, such as uh, various types of hoarding behaviors for various reasons, I'm sure. Uh, I'm reminded here of uh, Jean Bordillard's example, which uh, might be completely fictitious. He recounted that there was some big riot in a shopping mall. I think it was Canada. And then somebody in this riot, people were looting the shopping mall and somebody in the riot screams, everything is free today. Take what you want. And according to this example, apparently that was embodied so well by the people, people that they kind of uh, switched off their idea of exchange value, and then they started exactly hoarding things like toilet paper and stuff, Mm -hmm. uh, because suddenly they forgot the idea that we're supposed to be part of this semiotic web where brands matter and where things have distinction between each other. So certainly, I think, no matter what the reason, and again, I'm completely on board with you in the sense that we should not be normative or uh, do this weird armchair pointing the finger at whatever is happening there, because I certainly don't know. But but there are obvious changes in consumer behavior that are very profound uh, compared to a normal state of affairs, if there ever existed one.
1: And whatever it is that is going on, something is going on. So, for example, if it isn't that people are hoarding, at least not to the extent that it's been described, then isn't it interesting that we have this huge reflexive tendency to denounce people for doing that. So the desire to imagine that people are hoarding and that what gets exposed at this moment is the evil of consumerism. I mean, that could be the more interesting phenomenon. The fact that people want to think of this historic moment as a sort of outburst of hoarding, where in fact there might be more banal explanations.
0: And this kind of, uh, interestingly, uh, this brings me, I I sketched a couple of questions uh, that I have for you. And maybe I could ask this from you and see what your take on them is before we go to discuss a little bit about the topics that we, we are going to be covering in this podcast series. So would that be okay? Yes, yes. So now we are, again, as uh, people typically are, we tend to imagine much grandiose significance to whatever we personally are living through. So my first question, which is, of course, very speculative, is that how much do you think an event like this will have actual staying power? Let's say it lasts for one month. Let's say it lasts for two months. But will this really, in a very general sense, do you believe that there will be actual staying power or change that will come out of this?
1: Of course, it isn't possible to do... The type of conjunctural analysis, Uh, conjunctural, I should explain this term. It's a term uh, that we take from uh, Antonio Gramsci and was the basis of cultural studies analysis from people like Stuart Hall. And the idea is that you can do a sort of 360 degrees analysis of everything that's happening and see the political, the economic, the social, the technological, the cultural All kind of happening at the same way with a sort of ideological tie or string tying it all together, and it's possible to read um, the the macro into the micro and and vice versa, but it's very difficult to do that. I mean, the the classic example of it was Stuart Hall's analysis that in Birmingham in the 1970s there was a series of incidents of muggings, um, which it seems were been done by young uh, black people against white middle-class people, and it caused this huge, almost hysteria from the media and from the establishment. Uh, They they really kind of got agitated by this, what was really quite a small phenomenon, uh, and then mugging became this issue. Uh, And from that, Stuart Hall was able to anticipate the rise of Thatcher and the turn of of Britain generally to the right. Right. Uh, So that type of conjunctural analysis, I think, lies at the heart of of, of what you're wondering about. And I suppose that's what we have to attempt to do. To my mind, the equivalent historical moment that we can compare to this is the financial markets crash of 2008, where suddenly we woke up to this news of crashing markets. Uh, And indeed, the world, I think, did change significantly from then. I think we probably can attribute the rise of populist uh, phenomena such as Donald Trump and Brexit, and much else, to the sort of sequence of events that was started by the financial event. So, I'm, I'm inclined to think that yes, it is going to be something comparable, but if anything, it's probably going to be a much bigger event than 2008. What exactly it'll look like this idea that people get used to working at home, that lots of businesses are going to be closed. Um, I mean, what what exactly the the long term implications could be? It couldn't also entirely be possible that all the people who are self isolating, that when they don't have to do it anymore, will just be delighted to not do anything like this ever again, and to just try and bring the world back to how it was. Um, who knows? What what do you think?
0: Yeah, uh, I was listening to Yannis Varoufakis yesterday on her on his uh, YouTube podcast, and he was echoing a lot of your points, saying that the 2008 market crash bailout which was largely largely according to him financed by China so his point is that capitalism never re- returned uh, returned to the same place where it was before uh, even though a sort of like everyday idea of living in living in a consumer society sort of came back to normal as a kind of ideological position but now he claimed that uh, this kind of bailout, is not possible for the second time. So for him, there will be massive reper- uh, uh, repercussions to the economy that are not going to go away immediately. Well, that as an aside, certainly some things that have come to my mind is that a crisis is like these, especially if they will remain in the, in the general public conscious, they do raise some questions about agency, for example. What is the agency of the consumer? Uh, What is the agency of people, in a sense, in a more general idea in the society? I would imagine we have to consider things like uh, the sovereign individual in consumer society and their agency versus a looming impotence in the face of larger forces and uh, and this of course ties in with the idea of this these kind of events showcasing quite powerfully how fragile the society that we live in is is in its uh, in its undergirding
1: to say something a little bit perverted about it all i i can't help but experience all this at least a little bit eschatologically um the end of the days i mean it wasn't that long ago that we saw that imagery from the fires in australia which did look absolutely terrifying and a major disaster, and it just seems that we're in a period where global warming might be moving towards some sort of terminal point. That capital perhaps is moving to some sort of terminal point. That people like Donald Trump—he's uh, like one of the the four uh, riders or the the four horsemen of the apocalypse. You know that 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 one by one these signs are are coming that are telling us that things are really now moving towards a terminal point. Of course, that's kind of a ridiculous thing to say, but again, at that level of how this gets experienced at some sort of libidinal level, I imagine I'm not the only one who's slightly terrified by, by, um, by where we are as a society. Of course, the great irony is that in terms of sustainability and ecology, this is a godsend. The airline's Um, There's been a massive grounding of flights. A huge amount of pollution seems to be passing up. So it's almost as if this might be a moment of respite as well uh, when it comes to matters of sustainability, which is the great irony of it all, that we might, despite ourselves, be moving towards a much more sustainable planet for the duration of this coronavirus outbreak.
0: Yeah, uh, Eric Swinjadao said uh, uh, some time ago that uh, we sociologists are completely useless. And with that, he meant that we we sociologists can never predict anything. He was alluding to sociologists cannot predict when symbols uh, manifest. So uh, not just the idea that something is going to change, because we can forget it like, like the Australian fires. Uh, we sort of forgot got about them already as the media cycle spins on. But then when we have uh, larger symbols, they live in the collective imaginary. We could mention like Greta Thunberg or a similar kind of a symbolic actors. So I think in this kind of crisis uh, with respect to the coronavirus, one thing that we could be on the lookout in a perverted fashion is when symbols start to manifest rather than when just events occur.
1: Do you see any symbols manifesting now? Uh,
0: Not that I can think of immediately, but that could be one thing perhaps to look for. Maybe there are acts that will manifest and get media attention or social media attention, let's say acts of solidarity, maybe some of those will catch on. Maybe we will instead be brought to a more dystopic uh, symbolics. Uh, Maybe something will happen that will be really bad. For example, today, uh, or was it yesterday, uh, Italy's death toll, unfortunately, due to the coronavirus is now higher than China's. And I saw images on Facebook with army trucks uh, carrying the dead out of the city. So maybe that will become a symbol, maybe it won't. But uh, I think these symbolic moments could be the moments when they manifest and if they manifest that might actually carry a certain staying power in the public imagination.
1: Yes, and of course we know there's already several high profile people who have the coronavirus, Michel Barnier, uh, Prince Albert of Monaco, Idris Elba, uh, Tom Hanks. And then of course we have the, um, I mean, if, if somebody dies for instance is what I'm, I'm wondering if we had a high profile debt Hopefully it won't be any of those people. But it seems only a matter of time before that will happen. That might kind of shock people up to the next level. And of course, the lexicon has now got these new additions, people using the term self-isolation, or I'm self-isolating now, um, social distancing, all these new terms that have just propped up and they're now common parlance.
0: And my second question, what would you propose? Will this have any effect more specifically on the global emergence of capitalist consumer culture.
1: It, it, it seems to me that we're living right now in a post-capitalist moment. You know, th- this idea that that markets have been suspended, that everybody is staying at home, that we're having these, at least the idea, and in some cases, the reality of rent holidays, things like this, uh, supermarkets are, are moving towards um you know much more controlled sales of objects. Um, so as it stands, the term post capitalist might apply, the term post consumerist might apply up to a point. Um and it's possible that as this disaster unfolds, those terms might become more and more appropriate. For those of us who like critical ideas, that's quite exciting, but I don't feel any grounds for optimism in in any of these things. The, the context of them is disaster, which is always the way, of course, that 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 the left advanced itself as a type of response to disasters uh, just in the same in the way that nationalisation of state resources, of railways or utilities usually follows some sort of breakdown or the nationalisation of the bank following two thousand and eight. Um so I suppose there's nothing new about that. But we do seem to be moving in a in a strange a strange direction. And one of the real possibilities is that the panic that's gripping the market won't be arrested. That people like Donald Trump won't be capable of reassuring investors that they should stop panic selling. And in many ways, it seems odd to me that people wouldn't panic sell because like if you've got stocks in an airline for example you know i mean i wouldn't want to have stocks right now in an airline and how many businesses like that um are just not going to be viable for a period which people are hoping is going to be 12 weeks which is massive in terms of keeping large corporations going but might even be significantly longer than that as well so it is very possible to think that lots of key major corporations are now non-viable. Lots of small businesses have already collapsed and may not be back. Um, in order to get them going, there's going to have to be billions and billions of global capital, trillions put into that project. But is that money going to be there? Is that capital going to be on hand? We're taking it as we're assuming that it will be. This it's it's It really is possible to take, like Humpty Dumpty, all the king's horses and all the king's men, might not be able to put this all back together again. Again, we'll see, but it's such a sort of fascinating moment right now. We're heading towards the unknown. Um, And again, the, the actions of the British government is interesting because their instinct is to just try and delay making these decisions that are going to be damaging to capital, whereas other countries have already just made those decisions. And it's interesting to see how... You know, there's two ways of responding to it, it seems. One is for governments to say, well, mass death is all very uh, terrifying and all that, but we must protect the markets. Or the other one of saying, well, markets are all very important, but we must protect the people. And it seems that that latter instinct is prevailing. Um, And in those countries that are slow, that, that are in that former camp, namely Britain and the United States, they are just day by day, finding that they're forced to, to, to enter that second way of looking at it, despite all of their conservative instincts. What do you think?
0: Yeah, in Finland, uh, we've all, already had some declarations from the government uh, to uh, try to stabilize the economy with massive spending. And uh, I guess uh, in contrast to, the, to uh, the British sort of stiff upper lip kind of a, a mentality, there is this idea of trying to use the typical mechanisms of uh, the stock market uh, to ameliorate the situation but as we already saw in the states when they did the did their first uh, stimulus package to the economy and it i think it bought one hour and then the stocks were as bad as uh, as they were crashing in the in this current situation But of course, on a more broader level, I also think this speaks something about uh, the complete abstract financialization of the late, late capitalist economy that ever since at least 2008 has operated as this constant crisis machine. It's always on the brink. It's always collapsing. Of course, with that, you justify all forms of austerity measures to countries, especially in the EU and so on. So... Capitalism in this sense is always being a crisis machine, but now it's sort of just escalated into this hyper crisis uh, situation. With the but the maybe this kind of crisis is maybe perhaps bigger than what its typical crisis functions were used to dealing with. I guess that is the question: How big is the actual consequence?
1: I mean, this is the the Marxist wager in many ways that because capitalism is defined by contradiction. Uh, that it will experience it as a series of crashes, but each crash will get bigger and bigger until it can't withstand it anymore, Till eventually it just pushes off the precipice. But of course, the reality, and Zizek loves to make this point over and over, is that the crisis keep on getting bigger and bigger, but then each time capitalism is able to respond by getting bigger and bigger as well. So it might... The the mistake might be that capital doesn't like crises. It might be that capital loves crises. The question is, is this one going to be so big, might it even overwhelm capital's capacity to to uh, uh, recuperate itself? And this would be the same inclination
0: also from a Deleuze-Guattarian perspective or in a more dark Deleuzean fashion from an accelerationist perspective. That, yes, naturally capitalism is a global uh, orchestration of ever mutating madness and libidinal energy and yes indeed it uh, crisis is not epiphenomenal to capitalism but it's very driving motor or even more darkly death is not an epiphenomenon of capital but actually it's driving engine and i guess what we are now here looking towards to the uncertain future is that is there another limit attitude can we imagine a limit of this global machine in its ability to remutate and reconfigure itself to find new opportunities in in this in this situation. Already right now, when you when you look at just the Finnish uh, popular press and you look at the advertisements, they immediately are littered with advertisements where uh, companies have seen various ways in how to cr- uh, transform this pandemic into a business opportunity. Well, and we all heard of how people are now selling hand sanitizers and all that on eBay. But in addition to that, uh, all these advertisements I see are now uh, insurance companies, for example, saying that, oh, now we have this pandemic. Uh, you should think about your loved ones and get insurance and so on. So it's not only this kind of business opportunity in a traditional sense, but it has become a natural massive opportunity to do something that resembles corporate social responsibility now. So that is where I think the mutational kind of trapeze of uh, capitalism is right now. How much of this crisis can you convert into opportunity and how much of this crisis will become an epiphenomenon that you cannot only discard anymore because of course capitalism typically has only capitalized the things that cannot be readily commodified but things such as pollution they're typically being left outside of capitalism as externalities that are somebody else's problem so i guess this kind of darker Deleuzean position is that uh, the question is is there an actual limit attitude that cannot be any more externalized outside of this ever mutating system
1: I, mean, I suppose it's kind of like the idea that if you question whether or not God exists, you've already accepted that God does not exist. You know, you if if you can no longer relate to God as something that's absolute, and and are at the stage you can pose the question, it's already all over. And something similar is happening here, isn't it? That especially before 2008, capitalism just seemed to be pure hegemony. You know, we had these books, uh, The End of History, and this idea that uh, all that was left to do was for Western, capital, parliamentary parliamentarian um, systems to just continue to deepen their, their powers. Um, and what 2008 reminded people, or at least provided us with the possibility that capitalism might collapse, that once we bear that in mind, we already recognized that capitalism is itself contingent that it has a beginning and a middle, and therefore it'll have an end. And we're back with this right now. So it's entirely possible that capitalism, if not entirely probable, capitalism will recuperate itself and maybe even bounce back firmer than ever. But the point is that at this historic moment, its contingency is again exposed. Um, and we can start to pose these questions. We can start to imagine not as a sort of mad speculative exercise but as something which is grounded in the social reality we see in front of us that we can start to use these terms like post-capitalism we can start to wonder are we moving towards something which should be far more state socialist Um, and these questions become live and again that becomes the sort of great perverted moment where where all that is solid is melting i'm paraphrasing of course that man can see the social relations um, for what they are, if only for a little period of time. And that's a very sort of exciting moment. And I think what we're interested in is the libidinal charge of that.
0: So the final question, number three here on my little list, would be, do you think that some form of solidarity or a more dystopian form of some sort of a technologized solitude is the one that will prevail out of this. And of course, world is not a binary, but do you, What which uh, direction do you see the scale tipping right now?
1: It's very hard to know. I read an article uh, in The Guardian, which corresponds to my own reality, which is telephoning people is back. So where, where people have got into the habit of sending messages to each other, um, like WhatsApp messages or SMS messages or whatever medium, Now uh, people are just calling each other and chatting to each other more. And certainly that's what I've been doing. So we have this irony that the more we self-isolate, the more we're reaching to communicate with people in a way which is much deeper than it was before. And I guess a lot of people are just worried that, you know, their elderly relations won't survive. So it's important to talk to them now. So it is, I think it's both two things at the same time, isn't it? It's more solitary behavior but also, more of an awareness perhaps, of people who are vulnerable
0: i'm I'm interested in uh, Franco Berardi's idea, where he just simply says that with uh, with the global expansion of social media, and uh, artificial intelligence or automation uh, we have never been so hyper connected and so hyper alone at the same time because we just stare blankly uh, zombified with all our multitudes of connections but none of these connections seem very real or very humane anymore so maybe there are some things that may come out of this that might uh, shake up that you know falling into this machinic flow of uh, algorithmically conducted and controlled very superficial connections with people so maybe in this realization of actual solitude staying at your home you kind of maybe there's some potential for breaking out of that solitude that the normal state of affairs again has given you in terms of you being machine uh, machinically uh, embedded in all these uh sized connections that's a good question That. One thing, one thing I'm I, I really want to follow up on as this goes along. Okay, maybe I'll let you loose, and you could uh, talk about these uh, potential topics of discussion that we'll we'll uh, deal with uh, later along the line as we're going to be producing these episodes.
1: Yes. So my idea, which I've pitched to um, to you, is that we should identify a series of keywords. Um, and then contact colleagues who've been working on or who are in a position to comment on them and just explore those keywords with reference to the contemporary moment. Classic text is, of course, um, a vocabulary of culture and society that Raymond Williams did in 1976. And if people don't have this book, they should really get it. It's possible to get it in paperback for uh, not a lot of money, and it's just a fantastic book to keep on your your bookshelf and refer to routinely. What Williams was attempting to do in that book was address all those terms that were being used in multiple ways. So the word culture, in particular, uh, it, it would be possible for ten different academics uh, to use the word culture, and each of them would mean something completely different by it. So there's lots of terms like that, that, that Williams wanted to just try and, and clarify. So to come up with a book that would try and ground them in a particular meaning in a way that might allow them people to have a shared discourse. Um, and there's several, uh, this idea of keywords keeps coming out. Uh, the, the current edition of the journal Kunst und, um, und Politics, which several of us launched a couple of weeks ago when it was possible to still circulate, we, we, we had a launch event of it. That, that's a very good issue. I encourage people to look it up. It's edited by Lauren Absa, Gogarty, and Andrew Hemingway, and it's keywords in Marxist art history. It's got submissions by people like Alex Potts and Stuart Martin, um, and it's just a series of short essays. So one of them, for example, will be on labor, and they're just really kind of short essays that state what these are, And there was also another very good one that came out recently, in 2016, on keywords for radicals. It's got uh, short essays in there by people like Silvia Federici, Nina Power, David McNally. So I was thinking, well, why don't we do something like that to be in that sort of keywords tradition, identify then what are the keywords at the heart of that might help us to um, articulate what's going on with coronavirus and consumer culture. And then talk it through with people who have uh, some expertise in these issues. Uh, What are some of the topics that you are thinking about now? Let me see. We have uh, terms like risk, virus, dystopia, hyperreality, care, psychosis, isolation, fragility, stigma, basic needs, crowds and madness, hysteria, liquidity, the cancelled future, accelerationism interpassivity, generational conflict. These are all terms that I think they're well-established terms that have particular reference points uh, in academia within consumer culture. But wouldn't it be interesting to revisit each of these terms now with reference to coronavirus? That's, I guess, something that we'll be doing for the next couple of
0: weeks while we're sitting at home in our pajamas.
1: We want to do an episode which looks at each of these terms and we're going to try and identify and um, our our hope is that the the colleagues uh, who write about these things will also be stuck at home self-isolating and be open to uh, having a good long chat with us as we explore these terms. So I
0: guess that's what we're going to be shooting for uh, together then and uh, we'll be back on this uh, channel very soon.